0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. One last time. One last time. I'm going to do this. Without crying at all, I promise. No, I don't promise that because it's not a reasonable promise. As I was thinking through what I wanted to say on this day, uh, it was obvious to me that God's intention for my last Sunday is his intention for every Sunday, that we bring the word and that we preach the gospel. And so uh, I'm here to do just that. Um, But before I do that, I do do want to say thank you to you, Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship, for being my home for the last ten years, for allowing me to serve you for the last nine years. Um, I have appreciated so many of the relationships, the friendships that have come from this community, people that have supported us. We had two kids that were born here. Uh, Many of you remember that. Um, you've, You've been our home for the last nine years. You've been Kara's home for the last 15 years. And uh, we are feeling now that God is calling us on to a new season of ministry, and so we will be leaving this Thursday to head back to the United States to continue uh, to support the Thai ministries that we work on here. But obviously my capacity as a pastor at CCF would not be practical from a distance, and so I've resigned my post here. And as a component of my work in the States, I will be joining um, the staff of our Ascending Church as one of their pastoral staff teaching there, And I I am excited for that new season, but it does not come without a significant amount of grief and grieving this particular setting. So um, thank you. Thank you for being our congregation. And today as I give this message, um, I want to set up the landscape for the next three weeks after this. Tim is going to be continuing on a, a series called A Blueprint for Worship. And as we have watched the Israelites walk through the deserts we've seen them uh through the exodus come to know a god that is far more than the god that they could have possibly ever conceived of beforehand they they saw these amazing uh uh signs come from god uh, that hardened pharaoh's heart to the point of breaking to the point uh, where the the egyptians as a nation was essentially made mute they were destroyed because of their pride And the Israelites, leaving them, left with uh, a certain vigor and a certain enthusiasm. But then we see as we go through these next many, many years that they're going to be in the desert, we see that they kind of ebb and flow in their faith. And at the very beginning here, we see God interacting with Moses and starting to set the groundwork for what would be his people going forward. And so as Tim introduced last week, we have this situation where where Moses is given uh, the covenant. And this is a, a very special time for the Israelites because this is really establishing a very new season, a very new relationship with them. And so I want to continue today in that, starting Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 12. We're going to pick up here. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and Hur here, are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I am gone, consult with them. When Moses climbed up the mountain and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on the Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. The glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all those whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair for cloth, tanned ram skin, skins and fine goatskin, leather, fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod, in the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet. Two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood, and over them lay with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings; never remove them. When the ark is finished, place it inside the stone tablet. Place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give you. Then make the ark's cover, the place of atonement, from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down at the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribing with the terms of the covenant, inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover, between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. I'm going to stop there. As I was beginning to prepare for the sermon, I'm going to be honest, my first couple of passes were quite confusing. Because I thought, how do you pull a sermon out of this? <laughs> It's a lot of instruction, it's a lot of description, it's a lot of details, it's a lot of purpose. But a sermon doesn't necessarily come and scream at you. It's not a a New Testament gospel with strong moral principles and biblical principles built into it that just scream at you, here's the message. And so as I'm studying this, I was praying over and over again, God, show me the light that you've hidden in this scripture. Show me what you want your body to know from this passage. From this passage, I see three key principles that are important as we lay out a blueprint for ministry over the next couple of weeks. And today, I want to spend my time on those three principles. I'm going to have a very simple, simple slideshow for you today because the principles are easy to remember. You can, remember, you can memorize them today. One, God is real. He is absolutely real. He is not a fiction. He is not a story. He is not some far-off being that was made up out of stories. He is real, and he is alive, and he is active. God is holy. God is not just man. He was a portion of him, came to earth and experienced the life of men, but God is not man. We were made in his image. He is the creator God. He is holy and how do you define God's holiness other than say that God is holy and holiness is what God is? God is holy. And last, God is, God is present. God is here. He is active. He is a participant in our lives. He is not some faraway thing. He is not just a story. He is active and present. As I was reading through this particular passage, these points kept popping out at me at different places. The, intent, uh, to, the intention to detail that God gave about how, what, how His covenant would be carried and protected, the details of what would go into that covenant, His very presence on the mount as a cloud descended on Him. I believe these principles are important if we are to know how to worship God. So I'm going to start at God is real. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. It's hard to not feel like I'm preaching to the choir on this one. Do you know that God is real? Because I'm going to be honest with you, the more and more I chewed on this, the more and more I kind of doubted how much I believed in his reality. And the reason is is because I was trying to grapple, I was trying to understand the implications of a real, live God. And I was trying to see how that has affected my life. and, And I was overcome with guilt and grief because I realized that I don't often act as though God is real. In my life so often he is a fiction He is a cautionary tale. A story that we've made up for for moral teaching. But God is real. As you look through Scripture, you see His reality. You see his interaction, his real interaction with the people of Israel during the Exodus. You see his real interaction with the disciples as he calls them away from their well-being. He calls them away from what they've learned their entire life to be and he says, come follow me. He's real. You see God's reality as Paul is struck with his sin. When Paul realizes that the eternal nature of his sin against god and he is transformed there on the spot these are not the stories of a fake god but we know those stories we know that god is real in our in our minds but sometimes we forget so today one of the things that i want to share with you is why i know god is real because sometimes, honestly, the Bible stories aren't quite enough for me. Because they're distant and they're far off and they're from a land that I've never participated in, a land that I've, I've never took part in. And so they're hard to understand. It's hard to see that reality. But as I look through my life, I see the reality of God. Ten years ago, I was quite surprised by the reality of God. At that point in time, I was 22 years old, I'd been a Christian in a Christian family, the son of a pastor for probably 22 years. I'm sure that I, it's complicated, but that's how it feels as a pastor's son. That's how it feels often as the child of a missionary or a full-time Christian worker is you've just always been Christian. You've grown up in a Christian culture. And, And for me, that was very much so the case. I was very much so living a double life one of deceit, one of pride, one of Christian tradition that was meaningless. Because it was the right thing to do. And for me, being a Christian was a moral standard, it was actions. Now with ten years behind me and looking back on how I perceive and how I interact with Scripture and who God is now, I can't say for sure whether I really was a Christian for those first 22 years. Because there's such a difference. And in Scripture it's clear that when that difference takes hold of you, you know it. And that is the point of salvation. When that difference changes who you would have been. I know God is real because I can look at my life and I can see how He's changed it. How He crumbled my walls of deceit. How He destroyed my pride. How He defeated my godless Christian tradition. And He showed me how fake it all was. And I was honestly, I was destroyed. My life changed pretty drastically at that point in time put me on a very different track a surprising turn to many many people upset many people surprised many people because to them I was who I said I was and so when I explained to them how I'd been lying for such a long time there was grief there was fear there was misunderstanding and then I followed up with and I think I'm going to move to Thailand which I just now can circle on a map because I didn't even know where it was before And I'm going to go stay with this family that I haven't seen in who knows how many years. And I'm going to teach science, which I have a business degree. I'm going to teach science at Grace International School because they must be really desperate for teachers. (laughs) And the people in my life were astonished by this change. And it's part of how I knew things were different. It's part of how I knew things had changed. So I picked up my things and I moved to Thailand. And I started teaching at Grace International School. And I got involved at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship. And over time, uh, my wife and I got engaged. That December, that June, we got married in this very room. Were any of you here at that point in time? Is anybody? There was a few. There's a few. Watching, Tim was here. He was in it. The Wades were here. There was a few. We watched our wedding video the other day. And I just realized, nobody's still here. Everybody's gone. That's the nature of our community. But in this very room I got married. And then couple uh, life happens. We had two kids. I took up a role here at CCF. Tim has shepherded me as a pastor for the last 9 years. Boy, that must have been painful. <laughs> I know that God is real because I look at who I would have been and I compare, compare me to who I am now and I see an immense difference. I am unrecognizable. And so if that's enough for you, then great. I hope that I've encouraged you that God is real today. If that's not enough for you, I want you to look at your own life. I want you to look introspectively. I want you to look at God's creation. I want you to look at what He has done. The miracle of life. The miracle of creation. The miracle of your salvation. And if you can look at those things and truly grasp them and say that God is not real, then He hasn't yet transformed you. God is real. And I do not believe that we can effectively worship somebody that isn't real in our lives. That isn't real in our hearts. He was real to the characters that we study in the Bible. And we know that because of what they were willing to sacrifice. The life of Paul, being beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, made fun of. He wouldn't do that for a God that wasn't real. He wouldn't do that for anything less than a transformation. So principle number one, we have to know that God is real. And when we worship, we should try and comprehend that. Because it will humble us. And if it doesn't, if you've rationalized God, if you've put him in the box of understanding, you don't understand. And he's not real for you yet. Because God is real when we realize how much we don't understand. When we realize how guilty we really are. Number two, God is holy. God is not just a man. This has been a real struggle in my life because when I was in college uh, at, a, at a conservative Christian Bible school, it was going through an interesting transition and I did not have some great theological um, undertowing in that particular university at that time. Now it's changed drastically. And I would recommend it to anybody. But at that point in time, it wasn't. And I was taught by a lot of people that did not believe in the holiness of God. They believed in the rationality of God the God that they could understand, the God that they could read books about and write papers about, the God of academia. That's the God that they believed in, and it was far less than who God truly is. God is holy. As I was studying this, I was eventually brought to First Chronicles. And chapter 16, it says, That day David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. And there's, there's a, a long praise here. I'm just going to read a portion of it starting at verse 23. But just listen. Close your eyes if you need to. Read it on the screen. Whatever you need to do. I want you to listen to the intensity of this worship. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Each day proclaim the good news that He saves. Publish His glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things He does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and joy fill his dwelling. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Tell all the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea and everything in it shout His praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations so we can thank Your holy name and rejoice and praise You. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. That is not a human. That is not something that we can understand and rationalize. God is holy. He is beyond our words. John Piper puts it this way, The word holy is, little, is a little boat in which we reach the world's end in an ocean of language. The word holy is a little boat on which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. God is the absolute reality beyond which there is only more of God. When asked for his name in Exodus, he said, I am who I am. His being and his character are utterly undermined by anything outside of himself. He is not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. Defining holiness is a challenge because holiness is defined as who God is and God is defined as holiness. His point here is is that when you get to the point of holiness and you look behind it, all you see is holiness. When you get to the point of God and you, you want to try and understand more about God but you're at that point and you look behind it, all you see is more God. There isn't anything beyond it. It is eternal. It is the only reality. It is the only truth. Holiness is holiness. So as the God of Israel is trying to communicate to His people about how to take His covenant and transport it and protect it and interact with it and communicate with Him, God says, I am far too holy to just put this on a piece of paper and have you carry it around willy-nilly. I am holy. You should take me seriously. And we know later that not taking the covenant seriously is death. That is the only other alternative. And that isn't simply just the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. The same God has the same requirement. His covenant is holy. And to defy His covenant is an eternal death. To defy His covenant is to defy Him. God is not just a friend. He loves us. God wants to know us. But don't be mistaken. God does not want to get to know us because somehow we are equal. God wants to get to know us because we are His creation. Because we are not equal. To treat God as your equal is to dissolve Him into far less than what He truly is. God must remain holy in our lives. God is also personal. How does He do that? I don't know. He's sovereign. That's how He does it. He does it in His holiness. It is a huge danger to try and rationalize God. Because if you get to that point, you've lost who God is. God is more than what we can understand. If we dissolve Him to that extent, what we get is a caricature of God. We get this comical drawing that exaggerates certain aspects of who God is and it downplays other aspects. And we accept that as God. And this is what happens when we take a God that is holy and reduce him to just being a God of love and grace and not justice and not wrath and not authority. We take a caricature of God and this caricature does not represent who God actually is. God is trying to communicate this to the Israelites as He gives them these very specific instructions. Not just what to build, but how to build it. The specific gifts that can be given. The gifts that can be offered. This to them, at that point in time, was the keeping of the new covenant. By keeping the new covenant, you respected the God in which that relationship existed. We have... Real life, modern day examples of this. If I took my marriage license and I folded it up into a cool little square and I stuck a coffee mug on it and used it as a coaster, it would communicate something about how I feel about my marriage, right? And it probably wouldn't be something my wife would be thrilled about. The treatment of that document is important because it's part of how I respect the relationship. By respecting the terms of the relationship, I respect the other party in the relationship. And I see the other party as who God intended them to be. In this particular case, God is saying, you can't just carry around these tablets in your pockets. This is my covenant. You must make a box. It should be gold laid all around it the lid should be of solid gold with two cherubim on top and on that is where I will stand on that is where I will communicate with Moses and I will give my word my testimony to my people God is holy don't dissolve him down to something you can understand do not settle for a God that is somehow understandable Do not settle for a God that is equal to you. Because that would be taking away his character. That would be simplifying him. Be okay with a holy God and recognize what that holiness means. You might say, well, that holiness is kind of a pain because I don't get it. Without it, you are not saved. Without his holiness, he is not who he said he was, and we are wasting our time. So either we come to terms with God's holiness and we recognize that we will never understand it, and we embrace that, or we wish for a God that cannot save. I would much prefer to take the God I don't understand, to be okay with that. God is holy. And in his holiness, he gives us two simple little principles here that I want to just take a quick section to, to address. And a lot of these are going to built out, be built out much further over the next three weeks at, at, as Tim unfolds these things. But one, he says, that people that worship should be freely given. It says, as, people, as, it, as it's laid on their hearts, they might want to give, and here's the gifts that you should accept from them. It does not command his people to give. It doesn't. And in the covenant itself, it doesn't actually say you have to give all your possessions away. God says, I want this to be a free will gift. Because I am holy. Because you could never, you, I, I could never mandate you to give me something that would be consistent with my character. Because God loves us. And in his love, he wants us to give freely. And that freedom is part of God's character. As I was pondering this, I was just doing a comparison in my brain as to what it looks to, to give and to worship in Christianity versus what it means to give and to worship in Buddhism. As we all interact with that to some extent here, it's pretty stark the difference. Worship and gift in Buddhism is by definition a self-righteous act. It is something that you do to earn merit for yourself and for your loved ones. Worship of Buddha is worship of man. That's what it is. And the reality is is that any worship that starts with the desires of man is the worship of man. Any worship that begins with the desires of man is the worship of man. That's why God gives us His template for worship. He is holy. How do we know what a holy God wants? We don't know God in His fullness. How could we possibly think, how could we be so prideful to tell Him what He wants from us? That's why He tells us what He wants from us, because He is holy. Giving in Christianity, in a Christ-like relationship, is selfless. It is the giving of self, the giving of possessions, not for my own personal benefit, but because of what God has already done. It is the manifestation of a life transformed. It is not the means to a life transformed. Key differences. How does God reconcile these things in all of his complexity? I don't know because he's holy and that holiness is to be respected because that holiness is how he can save us one thing that is clear here is is that worship is to be intentional it is to be purposeful God doesn't just say and my people will worship me what he says is okay you're going to build this temple And here's exactly what it's going to look like. And here's the exact shape and size. And here's the materials you're allowed to use in it. And then you're going to take my covenant and you're going to put it in this box and you're going to carry it with you everywhere you go. And it's going to be this exact size and shape and this exact material. And it's going to look exactly like this. And its use is going to be exactly like this. Worship is something that that God defines. Not something that we define. And it is prideful. For us as Christians, as the church, to define what worship would look like. We are to search Scripture for that. We are to search God's word. We are to search in prayer and in supplication. That's how we define what worship is. It comes from God. It starts with God. See, this is the heart transfer, trans, trans, transformation that's the word I'm looking for the heart transformation that God is looking for in the Israelites. Their life was all, woe is me. Oh, woe is me, slavery. Oh, woe is me, this. Oh, woe is me, that. So God removes them. And what happens? Oh, woe is me. Can I go back? Oh, woe is me. I don't like manna. Oh, I don't like this dependency thing. It was all about them. And God is trying to take them through this transformation. of saying, it's not about you. He's trying to tell them, it's about me. And so He doesn't just say, Worship me willy-nilly. He says, here's how you do it. Because it's about me. Not about you. Because God is holy. And God is real. That holiness and that reality have to go hand in hand. It doesn't matter if you think God is holy if he's just a fiction. And God's holiness doesn't matter if he's not real. They have to be the same. They have to be in the same relationship. You must know that he is real and you must know that he is holy. Why would it be worth worshipping anything less than that? If it was anything less than that, then why not just worship yourself and give yourself what you want and enjoy this hopeless world that we've been given? But it is so much more than that. So much more than that. God is present. So God is real, God is holy, and God is present. This is a key piece of this with the Ark of the Covenant. Is, as God is laying out for them, un- unfolding for them what the purpose of the Ark is, he, he clearly defines that His covenant relationship is a presence. It's an interaction. It's, it's, there's a relationship component to it. That God is not just far, far away on some throne yelling commands at His people at a distance, but that God is present. And they are commanded to keep the Ark with His testimony. I love that word. His testimony, they're they're supposed to keep the ark with his testimony in it with them. That they are to carry it with them. And he even gives them very, very specific instructions on how to carry it. Because he didn't want his people to die. He didn't want his people to break the law. But he wanted to be present. God is present. This covenant between God and his people is not salvation in and of itself. It is a manifestation of God's love. It is something that, that he, has, he has communicated his love through this relationship to us, through this covenant. And we are to keep it with us. Mercy seat is, is the common term used for this. The more and more I study that, the more and more I realize that um, I don't actually really like that <laughs> term. I think it's a pretty poor translation actually. Uh, for two reasons, both of the words, mercy and seat. Um, one, mercy is just a peace. If you, if you truly translate it there, it's atonement. It's reconciliation. Mercy is certainly a component of that. Mercy is, is what God does in that relationship, and that, that is an important piece. But as far as I'm concerned, mercy falls far short of the reality of that situation is that you are restored, it's not just god's mercy it's his restoration it's his rebuilding of your life it is your recreation you are fully atoned for you are fully reconciled the second word seat it probably wasn't a seat <laughs> when it comes down to it the 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 term the 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 uh, the words that are used there give a picture of God's presence existing, that he would be there, that his existence would be there. And, and we've kind of used, we've taken that a bit of a distance now and we, we use this English word called enthroned or sitting on a throne as a picture that we use for those Hebrew words. But the reality is, is that that's actually kind of a weak translation, that the reality is that it's about God's presence. So I would say if you don't believe me that he was standing, the second point, point I would make is it doesn't matter. That he exists there. That he dwells there. The way it was told to me originally with the mercy seat, which now I realize was was just a... An, it was a far less of a translation than it could have been. When I had a professor sit down with me and I asked him, why do they call it the mercy seat? And he said, well, because it's God has poured out his mercy on you and now he sits next to you as a brother and walks through life with you. That sounds great. But the reality is, is that... That's not the picture that God is painting here. He is holy. He is not just sit- I don't have my arm around Him sitting here as equals. He is holy. He is on His throne. He, he is all-powerful and all present. And while He is all-personal, that does not fully define who He is. And that mercy just falls far short of what God has actually done. It's a word that that just falls short of the fullness of what God has done for us. He has atoned for us. He has paid a price that we deserve to pay. That's atonement. He is present. He is here. So how does a real God that is ultimately holy and not in any way our equal, but very personal... Also be present. That's a bit of a brain teaser. If he's too holy to be your equal, but he wants to be present, how does that work? And the reality is, is the, the, the right answer for that is that's how God has defined it within his love. And I don't have to rationalize that to the point of my understanding because God is holy and the danger of rationalization is... Dissolving God into this little puddle of goop that's not actually God. The danger is walking away with a characterization of Him that's not accurate. The Israelites got this to an extent, I believe and maybe that was because in their day and age they were they were following a pillar of fire and cloud and being given manna on a daily basis and they had just seen these 11 wonders happen before their very eyes so to them god should be very real they had witnessed firsthand these amazing divine acts so it should be pretty easy to say well yeah god's real even in their context what happens God quickly lost his reality. They quickly went on to worshiping other gods. God lost his character to them. It wasn't because God lost it. It was because they lost it. He is present and that presence is vital. Because we are told that that God loves us individually and he loves us personally and He knows our very circumstances and He knows our very context and He wants to be part of our existence. So He is present. I am thankful at this point in time that in order to engage with God's presence, I don't have to kill any animals anymore. Because Jesus Christ came down from heaven and died on the cross, a painful, terrible death that we deserved. So that we could have direct access, direct relationship. God is holy. Is it humbling to you that the holy creator, God of the universe, cared so much about you that he was able to give you his only son to pay a price of pain and death that you deserved? Is that humbling? Does that change the way you live your life on a daily basis? I don't know about you, but I feel guilty. I feel like I take advantage of that. Like my life falls short of what it should because of that great sacrifice. Unfortunately, we worship a God that doesn't expect us to live in that guilt. Right? That's not from Him. Reconciliation is from Him, change is from Him. That guilt, that gnawing in the back of my head, that, 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 Sin that I hold on to that is unreconciled, that is Satan at work. That is not God at work. God's work is transformational. His work is reconciliation. Satan's work is to keep me in the mire. Keep me doubting. So while I know this truth that I do not fully understand God and that some days I wake up and I don't think He's real because I don't live it, while I know that that's true, I don't live there. I go back and I remind myself of God's good word. I seek him in prayer. I surround myself with encouraging brothers and sisters that that speak encouraging words to me that might sometimes be hard to hear. And I'm reminded by the people that God has put in my life that God is real, that God is very much holy, and that God is very much so present. How does his presence change us? How does his holiness change us? How does his reality change us? As we're worshiping, are we worshiping only to the extent of what we understand? Or are we also worshiping because we don't understand? What does this look like as we live it out in our lives? God has given generously to all of us in some respect or another. To the extent of what we need. One of the things that I struggle with is not wanting to stockpile that. God has given to me and now I have. So I just need to like lock it away and sit on it. Nobody touched this. This is mine. God gave this to me. But the reality is is that God gave us so that we could give because that is His character. And I am convicted that maybe I've been stockpiling God's generosity, that I've been keeping it, that I haven't been giving, that I haven't been opening up my home to others to the extent that I should be, that I haven't just paid for a meal every once in a while instead of having somebody else do it or splitting it. God has been so generous. And yet I feel I need to stockpile it. Like maybe someday I'll run out of God's generosity. Which just seems ridiculous when I say it, right? Are we generous? Do we love uncircumstantially? Absolutely. Without limit. Because that is the love that God gives us. In his holiness, he is equipped to love us to such amazing extent that we cannot remove ourselves from that love. And that is the standard and it's easy to look at this. If, if you're a parent, it's easy to look at this and say, yes, I love my child unconditionally. It doesn't matter what they do. I love them. They can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. And I will love them to the ends of the earth because that is my role in life. I would say that is a very, very healthy attitude. Do you share that same attitude in your love for your wife? In your love for your friends? and your love for other people in this congregation? Because that love isn't limited to just your kids. It's not. It's easy because that's, society has said it's okay to love our kids eternally and without circumstance. But society said it's also really okay to have limits on how much I love my wife or my husband. And so we're happy to hide behind those limits. And we're happy to say, well, I love my kids a lot. Do you love your spouse? to that extent do you love your friends do you love your community to that extent that's the standard Jesus was not a blood relative of the people that he sacrificed his life for I would give my kidney for a blood relative maybe a piece of my liver would you do it for for a perfect stranger would I do it for one of you would you do it for me would you pay a penalty for me? Would I pay a penalty for you? That is the standard. It's easy to come to church on Sunday morning and feel like we're doing pretty well. My last point here is that at that point in time, when you feel like you're doing pretty well, when you feel like you're skating along, like you're being pretty generous, like you got your 10% tithe figured out, like you're, you're being generous enough, what I want you to tell yourself in your brain right at that point in time is is that I forgot how holy God truly is. Because at that point in time when you've arrived, it just became about you. And the reality is that the standard is so much more than you. So much more than me. There isn't an end to our development in the character of God. Because His holiness is the standard. So how do we live this out? What limits do we put on ourselves? At what point in time do we say, I'm good enough? God is present. He knows. God is real. He's not a fiction. Judgment is real. Wrath is real. Grace is real. God's character is real. As real as the people sitting next to you. As real as the chair you're standing on. It is real. Do you operate your life with the reality of God's judgment and grace in the back of your mind? Do you make time for Him? Do you respect His active presence by building some protection around your time, your, your covenant relationship with Him? There's a beautiful picture of the ark, right? As the ark was built to contain the covenant, and if you touched it, you died. It was not meant to be damaged. The poles were never to be taken out. Even though they could be, they were never to be removed. Because they didn't want to take the chance that it would get scratched or dinged or that maybe somebody would fall against it. It was meant to be protected. The covenant was meant to be protected at all costs. Do you protect the covenant in your life at all costs? Do you protect the time and the energy that you should be giving God at all costs? I know I don't. Sometimes I let ministry get right in there and take over my life. And I don't protect the time that I need with my Creator. I don't know about you, many times, I'll raise my hand to this, you don't have to, how many times have you gone a week or two of doing ministry and not praying? Because at that point in time, God is not real to you. And we need to go and revisit that again. We need to be convicted by that. He's lost his holiness. God is real. God is very much so holy. And God is present. If you doubt those things, search them out. Look at your life. Look into the lives of your brothers and sisters. Be the body of Christ. So I was thinking about how to end this. I thought God's given it to me. If I come back in future years and I look at this church, what I want to see is a church that knows the reality of God. I want to see a church that knows the holiness of God and a church that experiences His presence. That's what I would love to see CCF as in the future. That's what I want for you, my brothers and sisters. That's what I desire for you as I move on to new ministry. As I want you to know those things. And I hope that you want me to know those things. Because we are together the body of Christ. And So I implore you to seek those things out. To know them well. To understand what you don't understand that you can't understand. And be okay with that.